Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. And notice that now, after their two victories, instead of just going headlong into the southern campaign and continuing onward in their victories and their uh, campaigns, they stopped for a worship service. Can you imagine how humbling that must have been? They were on a roll, and everyone was excited, and they stopped. And sometimes that's the, the thing that really blesses the Lord. Welcome, everyone, to Truth in Christ Radio. Today, Pastor Rob begins our study in Chapter 9 of Joshua, but first gives us a review of the first two battles the nation of Israel faced when they entered the Promised Land. We have learned so far that Israel needed to follow God's direction and be obedient to Him as they entered this land. If they did not, they faced defeat as they moved forward. However, even though God allowed them to enjoy two victories, Joshua kept them humble before God by having an altar built and had Israel worship their God before moving on. And now, let's join Pastor Rob for today's study. Let's see. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 9 this evening. We are going to look at Joshua 9 tonight, but we're going to finish the last few verses of chapter 8. Let's look at this tonight. You recall that uh, the children of Israel had, they had this wonderful victory. You know, God had brought them through the, the desert and on their way out from Egypt. He, he brought them into the promised land as he was so faithful to do. They finally come across the Jordan River miraculously. Remember, Moses wasn't allowed to go across the Jordan River, but he died on the east side of the Jordan River And it was Joshua, the one that would take them into the promised land, fulfilling the prophecies that God had spoken uh, hundreds of years prior through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others. And, And these promises are promises that God had made. And aren't you glad that God, when he's, when he gives a promise, he's not like man. Man, we can make a promise, and we will go back on that promise or break that promise. But see, God is incapable of breaking his promises. And the reason for that is because we break promises because we don't understand our own weaknesses. We don't understand our frailty. But see, God is not frail, and he has no weaknesses. And he also has the unfair advantage of being Almighty God, meaning that there's no power that that exists outside of him. He is all-powerful, and he's also all-knowing, so he doesn't, there's nothing that can take him by surprise. So when he makes a promise, he has a way of fulfilling it to the very day, 
Isn't that scary? To the very day, using imperfect people, he can make his promises that he's made hundreds and even thousands of years prior. He can make it come to pass on the very day that he specifies it. To me, that is wonderful in God's wisdom and his power. That in spite of man, in spite of us, he can do that. So he calls Israel to come across. He gives them the promise that they're going to go and inherit that land in the land of Canaan. He brings them over the Jordan miraculously. And the first thing they encounter is Jericho, this fortified city, remember, with a double wall. And you recall that all they were supposed to do is just be obedient to God. It wasn't even a battle that they really had to pull out their swords to fight. They basically went in for the cleanup. But God had told them just to be obedient, just to go around. And you can imagine Joshua, this great military man, and most military people who have been in the service or have been in wars, they already have their, they know war. They understand it. They know the different schemes they can do. They know the different plans that can be done to win a war, depending on the demographic and depending on their enemy's weaknesses or strengths. And so Joshua is very familiar with this, but God tells him to do something really amazing, and that is just take the people and march around the city. Just do that. What? Yeah, just take the ark and uh, just go around, have the men in the front with the blowing the, you know, the priests blowing the trumpets and or blowing the ram's horns. Just do that. And so they did that in obedience, probably scratching their heads. And they were probably as bewildered as the people of Jericho as they looked outside the walls and saw these Jews walking around, and then they go back to their camp in Gilgal, and they're like, what is going on? They do that six days, and then finally the seventh day, they do it seven times. At the opportune moment, they shout, you recall, the walls fell, and they just go in, and and many were killed even in that, and then they just go in, and they finish the job. And you recall that it was Achan who... um, uh, after after this event, after this great victory, uh, it says for us in Joshua 7 that Joshua told the men, uh, two men, actually he sent men from Jericho to Ai after this, and they just had this great victory. So he says, go up and spy out the land, and, and, and then they returned back to him, and they said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't even weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. And, and so they go up, and they actually get chased back, and 36 of them die. They lose their lives, and they're being chased by their enemies, which is the first, really, uh, defeat that they've ever experienced. You know, and God had made these promises, and yet here... After this great victory is when, they, when they're defeated and they run from their enemies. And so we see that it was because of sin in the camp and, and, and God had laid it out and through Urim and Thummim, this way of having uh, the priest would have uh, two stones in his uh, breastplate and he would reach in and they were both the same kind of stone and one was black and one was white and then he would reach in and they would ask questions and then um, they would pull out a stone, and if it was white, it was a yes answer. If it was black, it was a no answer. And through that process, we believe, is how they narrowed it down from all those tribes down to the family groups and right down to the family, right down to the man. And you remember what happened, that Achan and all of his family, because his family, we believe, were in on this because none of them spoke up and said, Dad, what are you doing? They all kept it in. So they were stoned to death, and they were all burned 
after they were stoned. Aren't you glad that it wasn't the other way around? Actually, there'd be no reason to stone them after they were burnt. (laughs) But thank God, you know, I think I'd rather be stoned and then burnt after I'm dead (laughs) than the other way around. And I don't know, for some reason I see even God's mercy and grace in that. He's he's not uh, some wicked God. But then they, they bury the family in Achan under a pile of stones in the valley of Achor there. And so God reveals to them what they had done. It's because of what Achan had done, and they all paid for it. They all paid for it. And so now in chapter 8, they they go up again this time. And this time the Lord, uh, you'll notice before in chapter 7, there was no mention of them really praying about what they were going to do. They didn't inquire of the Lord. They just kind of went up and did it. And um, But now, after their defeat, God tells them, and after uh, Joshua's repentant heart, after all of this, God gives them the battle plan. And it makes you wonder if, if they would have done this the first time, if God would have done this and, and spared them this defeat. Of course, there was still sin in the camp. And maybe it's because God knew that there was sin in the camp. He was just silent, waiting to see what they would do. Don't really know, but... Nonetheless, they, they, they finally get their act together and they realize what had happened and, they, and God gives them the battle plan. And this time, there's supposed to be an ambush. Instead of hitting the enemy straight on like they did at Jericho, coming up right on, the, on, on all sides and just going in, they were, they were to go up behind them. And, um, and they didn't see this because this was all done at night. And then when Joshua finally did come down to the valley, all the men came out as before. And they chased them down, and as they all came out of the city, of course the ambush behind the city came into the city, lit everything on fire, and of course then they come down, and then they're kind of sandwiched in between Joshua and the men, and then the guys who had already ambushed the city, and now the enemy was right in the middle there, the, the, the people of Ai, and they were destroyed that day. But let's pick up at verse 30. It says, Now Joshua... In fact, before I go there, let me just show with you a couple of things up here on the screen. If you could kill those lights, Scott, on the screen. This is a familiar graphic that I've been using, but for those of you who weren't here, uh, this is really the strategy that God had given to them. You know, they started over here in Shittim or Acacia Grove. They were to go across to Jericho and then to Ai and um and, and, and then they were going to go south first, or, or after this, their central campaign here in the center, they would go down south, and, and that's where we're going to be looking at tonight, but we've got to finish uh, chapter 8. Uh, we got a little too quickly uh, ahead of ourselves uh, last time. And then finally, they will go north in their campaign, and then they will ultimately have control over all of the land of Canaan. And so, if we look at the next slide here, you can see... Uh, what we're looking at uh, tonight, uh, beginning in verse 30, because here's where they were after Jericho, but Ai is over here. So after they conquered this enemy, we're going to see them traveling up here to Shechem, and there's two mountains, uh, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and we're going to see that. In fact, I'll just put this picture up here while we're reading it because it will help us to understand. I don't know, I'm a very visual person, and I love to see as I'm reading things, I like to see where these things were located. And so let's pick up in verse 30. It says, Now Joshua, he built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, uh, as 
Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel. And it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Now, notice something that's really interesting here is that when it says an altar of whole stones, what that means is stones that have never been cut. Um, when you think about what happens at an altar, it's, it's very ugly because an altar is a place where death occurs. An altar is a place where there is blood. And so God wanted to make sure that when they were to worship at the altar, on any altar that they made, it was to be of whole stones or uncut stones, meaning don't fashion it and make it beautiful. Don't fashion it and make it beautiful. And I almost wonder if, if, if it's because of what is going to happen on that altar. It's nothing to be glorified in the sense of looking at it and going, wow, this is a really great thing. You know, it kind of reminds you of Cain and Abel. You know, Abel's sacrifice was bloody. It looked horrible. I mean, to the human eye, who would want that kind of thing? Wouldn't you rather have the, the beautiful arrangement that Cain brought? The fruits and the vegetables and probably the flowers and the little, little mints and the little grass that they have? You know, <laughs> But something ugly takes place on an altar. And God is saying, don't, don't make the altar beautiful. Because what happens on that altar is death. A death in your place. You should be on that altar, but I'm going to accept a sacrifice. A, a, I'm sorry, I'm going to accept a substitute on that altar, which was an animal. A sheep or a lamb or a goat. In Exodus chapter 20, it's, uh, God specifies this idea of this, uh, this altar. And he spoke long ago. He says, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings and your sheep uh, and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And so again, an altar. It's supposed to be crude. If you recall, there was a time when King Ahaz, he was the king of Judah, and it's recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 16. The first 10 verses really speak to it. We're not going to really read that tonight. But you remember that Ahaz um, was going to the king of Assyria for help. And while he's there in Assyria, he sees their worship. And he sees their pagan worship. And Ahaz, if you remember, was one of the most wicked kings Israel has ever had. And so he sees this beautiful altar. And of course the enemy, uh, the, the one who doesn't really have any scruples about worship and who God is and, and the sacrifice and what it's really all about, they are going to build an altar that's going to look like the Taj Mahal. It's going to look perfectly cut. It's going to look smooth. It's going to have marble ascent to it. It's going to look gorgeous. There's going to be little sculptures on each side, you know, and it's just going to look just right. It's going to be easy. It's going to be easy for the worshiper to, to worship there. And you remember what he did. He was so enamored by this altar that he sent plans of it back to Uriah, who was the priest, and he wanted to build a replica of it on the altar. And so he moves the altar out of place in the temple or in the tabernacle, or in the temple at that time, moves the, the, the one that God had specified for them and wants to put up this beautiful, nice-looking new sports car. 
shiny red. I'm sure it had chrome all around the edge of it. Probably had one of those green little, you know, tree things, air freshener things hanging from the window, from the rearview mirror. Verse 32, it says, And there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Now remember, the, the, the law, we, when we think of the law, we think of the Ten Commandments, but it could also have been the actual entire book of Deuteronomy, or even uh, portions of the book of Deuteronomy. They would write on these, white, uh, these whitewashed uh, stones. They'd, be, they'd have lime on them, and it would be, make it easy for them to engrave uh, the law on those stones, and that's what they did. And you think about it, after, after these two victories, these great victories, you know, as a, as a general, you would think that, you know, Joshua would have just wanted to ignore what Moses had said, because Moses earlier told them in Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 that when you get into the land, this is what you need to do. You need to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and you need to get there in the center, and the, and the ark is going to be there, and there's going to be six tribes on this side and six tribes on that side. And you're going to pronounce the blessings and the cursings, and, and it was a perfect amphitheater. And so everybody, the whole nation, would hear the blessings and the cursings. And they were to do that, and then they were to take and write on these slabs of stone that had been uh, with lime on them, and, and they were able to carve into those stones uh, the, the law, perhaps the entire book of Deuteronomy. And notice that now, after their two victories, instead of just going headlong into the southern campaign and continuing onward in their victories and their uh, campaigns, they stopped for a worship service. Can you imagine how humbling that must have been? They were on a roll, and everyone was excited, and they stopped. And sometimes that's the, the thing that really blesses the Lord. When, when he knows we're on a roll, when he knows that we finally get it, and we're, on, we're, we're going forward, and then all of a sudden... You know, there's this, um, he would ask you to worship him or to stop and give thanks to him. And, and, and it seems like, you know, I just, I don't want to do this, Lord. It's, it's slowing me down. I, I'm on a roll now. I don't want to stop. I want to keep going. And the Lord's going, where is your strength coming from? Is it coming from your own self or is it coming from me? And so they make this stop here before they continue their campaign, and they worship there at the foot of, the, of Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And you can see it down here. Right down here is the, the town Shechem. And, and so they would stand in this valley here with the ark and the six tribes on one side and six tribes on the other, and they would pronounce the blessings and the cursings, reminding each one of them, reminding everybody again the importance of keeping the law and, and doing those things that God had told them for their own good because they needed to be accountable and they needed to hear it again. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's so true that they needed to hear it again because these things that God had spoken to them and had written in the law in the book of Deuteronomy were things that they had messed up in. And history shows that. They, they, they completely went away from the things that they heard so many times. And so was it a waste of time for God to tell them again and again and again, to remind them again and again. And you and I are no different than they are. We need to be constantly reminded, and so he did. But Joshua, I love this, he, he was a real leader. He wasn't, he wasn't going to uh, disobey the commandment of Moses. And he made himself accountable, even though Moses was gone from the scene. 
He just didn't take matters into his own hands and says, well, the old man is dead, let's party. We've had these two victories, let's break out the champagne. You know, let's have a big party. There was no party. There was a worship service. There were sacrifices and offerings on the altar. And see, I love that about Joshua. He wasn't just a a lone ranger. He was still a man under authority. He was still accountable. And and that's true for anyone in ministry or anyone in any position. It's important that you keep yourself in accountability because you are not an island to yourself. You're not a lone ranger. You're not someone, because of whatever authority you have, it doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. You see, absolute power absolutely corrupts the one wielding it unless they are almighty God. This is why dictatorships are so um, hideous, really. You get a man who has absolute power over a country, and we see instances like that with Saddam Hussein. He had complete control over every single element of the country, and no one dared defy him, or he would, they would be killed. And so everybody um, obeyed him out of fear of death, really. But he needed to remember that his authority was given to him by Almighty God, even though he didn't acknowledge him, like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, did. It's kind of ironic that one of the coins uh, in Iraq, they would have a, the, and I've seen the, this coin, on one side is a picture of uh, Saddam Hussein, and on the other side is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted to be like Nebuchadnezzar, but unfortunately, Nebuchadnezzar is, well, fortunately for him, Nebuchadnezzar, we believe, is in glory, but Saddam Hussein, hopefully he made his amends in the last few moments before those Shiites hung him. You remember on that December? I think it was a December or November. But absolute power absolutely corrupts, but Joshua knew his place. He knew that he was a man under authority. He was under authority. So verse 33, it says, Then all Israel, with their elders and officers and judges, they stood on either side of the ark before the priests, the Levites, who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger, as well as he who was born among them. Notice, half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before. And again, just write this down. Just Tonight, read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, because that's where Moses tells them to do this very thing that they're doing now. So years earlier, he tells them, and it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy, what they are to do when they finally get across. And now they are across. Now they have defeated a couple of enemies, and now they stop to do this very thing. I love what it says in James. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And that's exactly what Joshua did. He wasn't so excited about, you know, having a big celebration after these two big victories. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to worship at God's feet. He was willing to do and be obedient to what God had told him through Moses. So verse 34, it says, And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, which the women, the little ones, and the strangers who were living among them. 
Isn't that wonderful? And so even the little ones, and you think of the great heritage. Those- I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today. But please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of Joshua. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester Sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcast. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.